I'm glad you're here. We're going to start a new series today in the book of Habakkuk, and I'm so looking forward to getting into this book. Before we do that, I want to just say a thank you to the folks that have been helping with all of this um, online, uh, the editing and the production and, and all the things that you see behind me. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I want to say thank you to Grace and Devendorf and, and uh, Smitty and Todd and Evan and all of the folks that have worked on the tech team and, and for the band, the time that they've given up. So this has been a, a, a labor of love for many of these guys and gals. And so I just want to say thank you to them because we couldn't do this without them. So uh, with that said, I also want to invite you to turn to uh, the book of Habakkuk in your Bibles. Now, Habakkuk is a, a kind of an obscure minor prophet. It's the fourth shortest book in all of the Old Testament, the fifth book from the back of the Old Testament, so you can find it there. It's three chapters, and Habakkuk is um, writing in a time where there's a lot of turmoil, and he is seeking to know why are the things that are happening? What, why are they happening? And, and what is God doing in the midst of all of these things that seem to be crumbling down around him? What we'll find, I think one of the things you realize as you study Habakkuk is that true faith, and I think Habakkuk has that. He has a true faith, but true faith often finds itself baffled, um, bewildered, at God and sometimes finds that, that, the, that the answers that God will give, the, the answers to the questions that we have raise even more questions. They sometimes even bring more problems for us. And that's Habakkuk. And so I want to begin, I want to jump right into it. I'm going to begin in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through the whole chapter. And I want us to look at what it is that Habakkuk does. It's going to be a series of questions and answers. Habakkuk's going to ask a question. God's going to give an answer. And it's going to go back and forth. And then we'll get to chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. But this is how it begins. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, stop right there for a minute. We're not given really any details about Habakkuk personally. We don't know about his family. We don't know his age. We don't know his hometown. Um, he, he doesn't even really have a typical Hebrew name. We don't even actually know how to pronounce Habakkuk. And so, we, I'm going to say Habakkuk. Some people say um, Habakkuk or um, Habakkuk, but Habakkuk is what I'm going to be using. The Bible here calls him a prophet, but he's unlike most any other prophet we encounter in the Old Testament. Usually when we encounter a prophet, they're speaking to the people, um, you know, they're speaking to the people from God. The, the prophet has a message from God to the people, but Habakkuk is different. Habakkuk is the prophet that is going to speak to God about the people. He, he's going um, to be hearing and seeing what it is that God has to say. And Habakkuk is greatly troubled. We, we do know that much. It's likely that Habakkuk is writing at the end of the 7th century, somewhere around 607 BC. And if, and if that's the date, then Habakkuk is in Judah. Um, you might more specifically think of Jerusalem. 
And things are bad. They're, they're corrupt. They're corrupt politically. They're corrupt socially. They're corrupt. Um, the, the city has become a place of, of injustice and wickedness. And Habakkuk cannot figure out how in the world God is letting these things happen. So look at what Habakkuk says in the next few verses, beginning in verse 2. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounded the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You know, like I said earlier, true faith, it finds itself bewildered often at, at what God does, and, and even more bewildered sometimes at the answers that God will give. Two things that, that Habakkuk will highlight for us here. One, he's talking about the silence of God. And two, he's talking about the violence of man. So like I said, we don't know much about Habakkuk. We can discern a few things though. In, in verse 6, we'll see that um, God is going to talk about, he's going to reference the Chaldeans. This is the Babylonians from Babylon. The king is Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him from the Veggie Tales. He was the one that through Rack, Shack, and Benny into the fiery furnace. Well, what it means, if this is the Babylonians, is that the northern kingdom of Israel, they've already been conquered by Assyria. That happened in 722 B.C. Judah, Judah is the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital. The king in Judah, the, the king of Jerusalem, he's from the line of David. But, but if the Babylonians are coming, we have this hint about the king, um, who the king was when, when Habakkuk is writing. And, and the king of Judah in Jerusalem at the time that the Babylonians invade is a guy named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim's a bad king. His father was good King Josiah. Josiah dies in 609 B.C., Josiah has a son, Jehoahaz. He's one of the sons that ends up becoming the king. And Jehoahaz is king for three months. And the Bible says that what he did in those three months was evil in the sight of the Lord. Actually, what happens is in three months, he undoes what his good father spent 31 years doing. Everything he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, Jehoahaz is only in uh, the king for three months. He ends up being uh, kidnapped, uh, taken captive by Egypt. And Jehoahaz has a brother. And this brother's named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim takes his place. It is still 609 B.C. Josiah died. Uh, Jehoahaz has only been king for three months. Now Jehoiakim becomes the king, and Jehoiakim's going to reign for three or for eleven years. And Jehoiakim ushers in the beginning of the end for Judah. 
In fact, the Bible says that everything he did in those 11 years was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, this is what Habakkuk is crying out to um, God about. This is, what, this is what he's saying. He's saying that the wicked, they surround the righteous and, and justice is perverted and, and, the, and the righteous, the, the, the remnant of believers. The, they're, they're there and they're finding that, that everything is working against them. Justice has been perverted. The, the leaders, the political, social, religious leaders, it's not safe. The people of God are being exploited. In fact, what's happening is that God is being exploited. And Habakkuk, he cries out. He says, don't you see? I mean, don't you care? Look at what's going on around here. This is Jerusalem. We are the people of God. God, why are you silent? Why aren't you making things right? This is Habakkuk's question. And Habakkuk, he's a guy we can relate to, right? I mean, it feels like the world's coming apart at the seams around us. Political divides feel further than they have ever felt before. There's a hatred and animosity that's in the air. We have a hard time knowing who to trust. We feel like the media lies to us. Our, our leaders lie to us. The, the truth's nowhere to be found. We can certainly feel that way. Corruption and, and, and violence and now, because of social media, we find ourselves wading through everybody's opinion, everybody's version of their own truth, and you throw on top of that a global pandemic and an economic crisis. It's, it's easy for us to say, God, where, where are you? Don't, don't you see all of this? Don't, don't you care? What, what are you doing? Habakkuk very much is a, is a book that is relevant in our day. See, maybe it's more personal for you, though. Maybe it's a diagnosis or a betrayal or a loss, a broken relationship or a, a broken heart or a broken body. Maybe life simply has just not turned out how you bargained for it to turn out. God, where are you? Don't you see all of this? Don't you care? What are you doing? Notice this, though. I want you to see Habakkuk, he has come to God in prayer. So, so he's not blogging or posting on social media. He's not posing philosophical questions to get his own peace of mind. He's praying. He's interceding. He's going to God. See, for Habakkuk, and for us. But prayer's not always the place we go to escape the problems of life. Prayer for Habakkuk was the place to express the problems in his life. Prayer's not always uh, the place that leads to greater peace. Prayer may be where we end up laboring and wrestling. Prayer may be the very place where we enter into the presence of God and find the volume of our pain and our, our perplexity and our confusion, that, that, that the volume gets turned up on all of that, not down. See, not always, but sometimes, and, and certainly this is the story we find in the pages of Scripture. It was the story for Abraham and 
for Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and the, and the prophets and, and the Apostle Paul. In fact, we even see that this was true for Jesus in the garden and the, in prayer on the night that he was arrested on the eve of the greatest injustice that was ever committed. He's not escaping the pain that he was in. He was entering into that pain fully and in the presence of God. See, what I want you to hear is that there's no safer place in the world to take your pain. Prayer's not always an escape, but it is in prayer that we can experience the reality of pain in the presence of the almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving God. We can immediately enter into the courts of praise, the, the throne room of the Most High King with our Savior Jesus seated at His right hand and, and the Spirit of God who indwells us, praying with us and, and praying for us. There is no safer place in all the world or in all creation to go with the pain and the perplexity of our life. No safer place than prayer. Well, God's going to answer Habakkuk. And really, it's kind of shocking. You, you, you cry out to God and, and you wonder. I mean, it, sometimes you wonder, if, is he even there? And, and you're wondering what, what it would be like if he answered. Well, Habakkuk records that for us. In fact, that's the outline of the book. Like I said earlier, Habakkuk's going to complain, God's going to answer. Habakkuk's going to complain again, and then God's going to answer again. And then, well, we'll get to chapter 3 in a couple of weeks. But look at what God says. Look at how he answers, beginning in verse 5, and remembering this, that this is God, the same God, the God that you cry out to, and the God that I cry out to, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And listen to what he says to Habakkuk in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. You see, far from being silent and far from being disconnected and far from being inactive, God is at work. And notice what he's doing. Notice the instrument, the means that he's going to use. Verse 6, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty or bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I'm raising up the Babylonians, he says. This is in the end times. This is right now, right here in your world, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise them up. And the Babylonians, Habakkuk knew about them. They were already on the scene. They had just or were just about to finish off the Assyrians, they, uh, um, the Egyptians. They were going to be next. And the Babylonians were the world power that was on the rise, and it appeared that they couldn't be stopped. And actually, they were feared. Everyone was afraid of them. And God tells Habakkuk, I am doing this. Well, look at what he says, verse 7. He says, they're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. 
Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. See, every nation in their reach was going to be conquered. Every media outlet and news organization would be reporting the horrors of Babylon. And God tells Habakkuk, I am doing this. Verse 10, at, the kings, at, or at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, that, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And God tells Habakkuk, I am doing this. God's answer to Habakkuk, I'm the sovereign God of the universe. In my hands are all things, all things, even the nations that are ruthless, the, the, the leaders that are wicked, the events that are horrific. Nothing happens on this earth apart from my guiding hand of sovereignty, God says. And God's telling Habakkuk, that he's going to use arrogant and wicked and an idolatrous nation as his instrument for bringing judgment on his people. Now, you've got to realize, this is far more than Habakkuk had bargained for. God, I, I want you to see what's going on. I want you to do something about the chaos. I, I, I want you to make things right. That's what Habakkuk comes to God to say. Habakkuk's one sense saying, I don't understand. You said you were going to bring salvation out of Israel, yet Israel's turned into this corrupt, awful thing. Do something, God. And God says, I do see, and I am doing something. In fact, if I, if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. You wouldn't believe what I'm doing. He says, I'm going to raise up this terrible... Babylonian empire, they're going to come, they're going to conquer the Jews, and the Jews are going to be taken into exile. That's how the story will go for Israel. Well, I want you to see how Habakkuk receives this news from God. If you'll look with me, look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So there's nothing like what Habakkuk says anywhere else in the Bible. He's not approaching God with, 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 a, with a courtesy. It's, it's not even necessarily with a, respect, with a respect. Habakkuk is in absolute anguish here. And the reason is, is because in, in the verses we read just before, I mean, why are you letting injustice reign? Look at what's going on. Look at Israel. You're supposed to bring salvation to the world through Israel, and yet everything's a mess and everything's falling apart. And then God answers, I do see, I do know what's going on, and I am doing something. In fact, what I'm doing is I'm going to bring the Babylonians. I'm going to bring the most ruthless people on the face of the earth, and they are going to sweep across the world, and they are going to crush you. 
And so back up here in verse 12, and then the verses that follow, essentially he's going to say to God, I, I can't believe that that's your answer. I, I come to you and I, and I complain, why are you letting injustice reign? And, and your answer is, I, I, I'm going to answer that with more injustice, with more evil, with, with, um, with more ruthlessness. You haven't even begun, Habakkuk, to see the violence and the oppression. And these are the things that I am doing. And Habakkuk is, I think, very close here to saying, you, you've got to be absolutely crazy. I, I mean, I thought you were supposed to be infinite and, and wise. I think what Habakkuk is, is he's emotionally um, intellectually being honest with God. He's wrestling with God. He's challenging God. Well, look at what he goes on to say in verse 13. He says, you're of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out of his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. This, this is what Babylon does, he's saying. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So I think one of the things to realize is that on the one hand, Habakkuk, he's, he's, he's challenging God. He's asking questions. He's struggling. He's wrestling with the doubts that he has. But on the other hand, and, and, and Habakkuk even says as much. I mean, the thought never enters his mind that, that, he, that he's going to walk away from God or that he's going to stop obeying God, or that he's going to stop praying to God, or that he's going to stop following God. That, that's not even an option that crosses Habakkuk's mind. Notice what he says, though. Back up in verse 12, he, he says to God, you are my holy one. As he's wrestling, he's wrestling as one who is faithful to God. As he challenges God, and from his own understanding and from his own perspective, he, he challenges as one who at the end of the day, he's faithful to God. See, he's, he's emotionally honest. He's intellectually honest. He, he's, he's wrestling. He, he wouldn't think in a million years to walk away from the God who is his holy one. But what he's saying is, listen, if you weren't holy, I wouldn't be upset. If you weren't eternal, I, I, I wouldn't be so bent out of shape. But I know that you're both those things. You're holy and you're eternal. And, and I, I don't know what I would do. I can't figure out life with you. I certainly couldn't figure out life without you. Where else would I go? God, you're the only one that has eternal life. And that, that's why I'm so confused. That's why I find myself wrestling. 
Not because I don't think I need God, but because you're the only answer that there is. See, I think what he does is he, in all of his freedom, in all of his faithfulness, Habakkuk feels the ability to go to God with the hardest questions that there are and the deepest pain that one could experience and, and go to God with, with, with all of the things that he doesn't understand and, and to press in on God about what it is that he's doing. You see, the only way that Habakkuk could do that is because Habakkuk knows the grace of God. He knows that, that he's able to wrestle with God and, and, that, and that God's steadfast love, is, his unconditional love isn't going to be taken away because, because Habakkuk's wrestling or because Habakkuk has doubts. There's, there's this space, there's this freedom, there's this safety in which Habakkuk knows he can go to God. See, knowing the grace of God on the one hand gives you all the freedom in the world to go to him with your pain in prayer, to go with, to him with your questions, to go to him with your doubts. And on the other hand, knowing the grace of God and having experienced it and, and, and remaining faithful to him convinces you there's no other place in the world that you would rather be than in the middle of his presence in the midst of whatever it is that he is doing. Our understanding of what God is doing is in no way prerequisite to, to God's love for us or our faithfulness to him. Well, I want you to see, and this is in chapter 2, the very first verse of chapter 2, and we'll end here. But I want you to see how Habakkuk ends this complaint. He says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, when God said, I I'm doing something in your day that, that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. I I'm doing something out there in the nations that you wouldn't believe. I am going to be bringing salvation in the midst of judgment. I'm going to be bringing justice out of the ashes of injustice. I'm going to be bringing salvation and justice out of, out of violence and oppression out of, out of the actions of those who are wicked and evil. And I know you don't understand, but that's what I'm doing. That's what God says. And the question becomes, well, so what does that mean? Well, I don't know that on this side of eternity we can fully know what it means, but we do have some hints. We do have some glimpses of what it is that God's doing, how he brings justice from injustice, how he brings um, compassion and grace out of the midst of the evil in the world. You know, if you were to look at what Paul preaches in Acts chapter 13, you could go there and Paul's preaching the gospel and he makes this amazing statement and he's talking to the people and he's saying, listen, God raised Jesus from the dead. 
And then he tells them in Acts 13, he says, and I want you to know that, that Jesus, he's the forgiveness of sins. He, he's the one proclaimed to you. Everyone that believes in him is justified and from everything um, that you couldn't be justified from by the law of Moses, Jesus justifies you by faith. And then he adds this at the end. And he says, take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then what he quotes, he says, look and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. What Paul does is he takes Habakkuk 1.5 where God says, I'm going to do something. And even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And then what Paul does is he takes that and he applies it to Jesus. And then Paul's saying that, that what, what Habakkuk discovered from God in, in Habakkuk 1.5, Paul says, listen, this applies to what Jesus did. This applies to the whole ministry of Jesus, the whole reason for the Son of God stepping out of eternity in to time and space, that this is like that. In other words, I'm going to bring light out of darkness. I, I can bring, and I, and I do bring. I'm going to bring salvation, and I'm going to bring redemption out of the ashes of injustice and, and wrong and evil and suffering. And it is going to find its ultimate and supreme and, and final expression in Jesus. And you know why? Because as God sent his son into the world, he sent his son into the world to go to the cross. And on the cross, what Jesus does is he takes the judgment that you and I deserve. Jesus didn't come in all of his strength. In fact, he came in weakness. He, he didn't come in triumph. He experienced injustice. He was tortured and suffered and died. And he did all of this because he is holy. See, Habakkuk, he's wrestling. He says, I don't understand why you put up with injustice. I don't understand why you tolerate all this evil. I don't know why in the world you would use evil and wicked people like the Babylonians because you are holy. And what God answers in Christ is I do all of that because I am holy. And on the cross, we see that it is finally explained. Because on the cross, because God is holy, because his son is holy, he, he can't just forgive us. Sin has to be paid for. But because of what we've done towards him and what we've done towards each other, it has to be paid for it. And because he is a just and righteous God, he sent his son to experience judgment on the cross. See, he paid our penalty. He took our judgment on himself. He's the ultimate example, the ultimate experience. This, this, this cross is, is, is the bringing of salvation out of the ashes of judgment, bringing the light out of darkness, bringing redemption out of suffering and evil and hardship. I think people were standing in front of the cross and they're looking at Jesus. I don't see what good could ever come out of something like this. And yet, it was the ultimate good 
So we look at our life and we look at the hard things we experience. We look at the sufferings that we endure or the, or the times in which we live. And we ask and say, what, you know, what in the world is it that God could be doing in the midst of all of these things? And we have to look no further than the cross. You see, the cross is the ultimate um, picture of, of Habakkuk's answer. It's the ultimate picture of the answer that God gives to Habakkuk because Habakkuk's confused. See, he's angry, he's confused, he's upset, he's been wrestling with God, and he doesn't understand, where are you, God? And yet in the midst of his faithfulness, he's able to hear from God, I am in control. You see, the greater Habakkuk, the greater Habakkuk we find in the garden the night that Jesus is arrested. As Jesus goes to the garden and he begins to pray, Father, is there any other way to do this? If it's possible, would you let this cup pass from me? And yet, in his faithfulness, in his resolve to do what it is that pleased the Father, what it is that was the will of the Father, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wrestles that night in the garden, a faithful wrestler in prayer. On the cross, Jesus will actually end up saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was really gone because Jesus was really enduring our judgment. He was really taking upon himself our penalty. And you know what that means? That Jesus was abandoned on the cross so that you don't have to be abandoned. When Habakkuk says, Lord, it looks like you've abandoned us. It looks like you're silent. It looks like you've turned your back. The cross says the abandonment's not real. God is working. He is working. He is doing things. His son was abandoned. So you never will be. And the reason he is, or the reason he won't is because he's faithful to us. And he's faithful to us because on the cross, Jesus took what we deserved so that we could receive all that he is. He got the abandonment. We, we get the presence. Christ was faithful. He bore the weight of all of our sins. And so you can know this. That even if the world crumbles around you, even if it comes apart at the seams, you're able to say, listen, I know that God's working somehow. I know that he can work in the midst of this. I know that he can bring beauty out of the ashes that are all around me. So I know that God loves me. And so because I know he loves me, I can be faithful. I can be patient. I can wait for him. I can like Habakkuk in 2-1. I can take my watch on the watch stand. I can wait and see. I can anticipate with great expectation that God will be doing something. You see, in one sense, I think what we can hear Jesus say to us through the pages of Scripture this morning 
is that when we look at the death and we look at his resurrection and we realize that we're in the midst of darkness and all the darkness that came upon him, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It means that, listen, sometimes bad things will happen to people that don't deserve it, but I want you to know that there's a reason for everything it is that God does. And someday, someday we'll know. It may be that someday we won't even care that all the darkness and all the difficulty and all the confusion and all the chaos will be eclipsed by His very presence. In fact, as we carry on our journey in Habakkuk, what we'll see is that's exactly what Habakkuk will experience. That the presence of God eclipses everything that he's able to see and everything he feels and every confusion that he has. And God has guaranteed us through his son Christ, his presence, if you've believed. I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted in the Son of God to take your sins, to take your place in judgment so that you can take His place in glory? If you haven't, you can do that this morning. The simple prayer, the simple acknowledgement, God, I believe your Son, Jesus. I believe what you sent Him to do. And I put my life, the weight of all my hopes on him. You can do that and know salvation this morning. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would take the very difficult and chaotic and perplexing questions and feelings and experiences that we have. And, and Father, would you draw us by your Son, Jesus, into your presence? And Father, it may be that we would experience peace. It may be that we'd find that the pain was turned up, but Father, we would know that there is no safer place in all of creation to be than right here in your presence. And so we ask these things the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.